Hey Conjurers. I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. Happy Happy Halloween! Halloween. (laughs) We have a special bonus episode today to fuel your Halloween nightmares. We all know about stranger danger and carefully check all Halloween candy for tampering. But where did that fear come from? Well, the entire country was forever changed by one evil man's actions one Halloween night in 1974. Ronald Clark O'Brien and his wife, Danine, lived a quiet life in Deer Park, Texas, with their two children, 8-year-old Timothy and 5-year-old Elizabeth. Ronald, who had just turned 30, worked as an optician in nearby Houston. He was a deacon at their church, where he also sang in the choir and was in charge of the local bus program. That Halloween night in 1974, it was dark and rainy, but the kids were eager to get the trick-or-treating started. The family had just finished a wonderful dinner with their friends, the Bates family from next door, so the dad suited up to take the kids out while the moms cleaned up from dinner. Ronald threw on his lab coat from work as a makeshift costume and they started knocking on doors. One of the houses the group approached had all its lights switched off, but the kids banged on the door anyway. When there was no answer, the kids ran off to find another house and Jim followed. Ronald stayed behind alone to knock a few more times. Okay, I just want to know why a grown man decided to knock on someone's door that clearly had its lights off, as if he didn't know what that means. (laughs) Right? It's an unwritten rule that everybody knows. He must have really wanted that candy. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently. Because a short while later, Ronald caught up to the group and had good news. He gave each of the four children a 21-inch pixie stick full of powdered sour candy. He explained that someone had been at the dark house after all. After two blocks of trick-or-treating in the rain, the dads decided it was time to head home. Along the way, they ran into a 10-year-old boy Ronald recognized from church, so he gave him that last remaining pixie stick. First off, let's never trust powdered candy from a stranger. Uh, Yeah, who even gives out pixie sticks on Halloween anyway? Girl, that's the house we usually skip. That one and the one that hands out those cherry Twizzlers. (laughs) (laughs) Once home, five-year-old Elizabeth was put right to bed, exhausted from all the excitement of Halloween. Timothy, being older, asked to eat some of his candy before going to bed. Ronald agreed and opened the pixie stick for him. Timothy was having trouble getting anything out, so Ronald rolled it in his hands to loosen the powder. Timothy downed a mouthful but complained that it tasted bitter and he didn't like it. His dad handed him a glass of Kool-Aid to wash it down and sent him to bed. Not long after, Timothy said his stomach hurt and started vomiting and convulsing. Ronald claimed he held Timothy while he was vomiting and the child went limp in his arms. Less than an hour after eating the candy, Timothy died on the way to the hospital. My God, what was in those God-forbidden pixie sticks? Like you said, never trust a pixie stick. Timothy's death from poisoned Halloween candy created a panic in the community. The local police put out the word that if any parents had any suspicious candy or if anything just looked strange, bring it to the police station. They wound up with an entire room full of candy, demonstrating the level of fear in the area. People didn't go trick-or-treating in that town or surrounding areas for years after that. I don't blame them. At that point, I would have thrown all my daughter's candy in the trash, and we would have just had it to make Donald's for one of those ice cream cones, if the machine was working that night, and called it good. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Same here, except I'm a Dairy Queen girl myself. <laughs> okay, so Mike Hinton, the lead detective on the case, called the chief medical examiner of nearby Harris County. He told him the situation and asked what the boy's breath smelled like. A call to the morgue revealed that there was a scent of almonds coming from the boy's mouth, leading to only one conclusion. It was cyanide. An autopsy proved the hunch. A pathologist said Timothy had consumed enough cyanide to kill two people. Tests later found that the top two inches of the pixie stick had been packed with the poison. That's horrifying. What kind of sick person does that? Was he that upset that Ronald didn't understand the unwritten rule? It takes a monster to try and poison children for any reason. Anyone that harms a child is a monster in my book. Police managed to recover the remaining sweets from the other children before any of them had a chance to eat any of it. The parents of the fifth child became hysterical when they could not locate the candy. The parents rushed upstairs to find their son asleep holding the poison candy. The boy had been unable to open the staples that sealed the wrapper shut. All five of the pixie sticks had been opened and refilled with cyanide powder and then resealed with a staple. According to a pathologist who tested the pixie sticks, the other four candies contained dosages that could kill three to four adults. Hold up. It was closed with a staple and no one thought that was odd? I mean, now I'm questioning everybody. (laughs) Right? Candy is never closed with staples, people. No. They still needed to find where it came from. The police took Ronald back to the neighborhood the group had been trick-or-treating in so he could direct them to the house where he'd picked up the pixie sticks. He struggled to find the house and claimed he just couldn't remember where he had got them. He said he'd never seen the face of the person responsible. Just a large, hairy arm had just emerged from the doorway and handed him the candy. Investigators were starting to get suspicious. Sharon will continue the story after this short break. A few days went by, and it was incredibly frustrating for police, so they took Ronald out again and were pretty firm with him. The tactic worked, and Ronald pointed towards the house that was dark that night. The home was owned by a man named Courtney Melvin. Melvin was an air traffic controller at William P. Hobby Airport. Police went to his work and arrested him in front of his colleagues. The mystery was over. Case closed. Well, that's a short episode. Oh, wait, there's more. Except he claimed he didn't get home from work until 11 p.m. on Halloween night. Police quickly ruled Melvin out as a suspect when nearly 200 people confirmed that Melvin was in fact at work that night. Ooh, plot twist. Yes. As their investigation furthered, police learned that Ronald had over $100,000 in debt and had a history of being unable to hold a job. He was even suspected of theft at his current job and was close to being fired. His car was about to be repossessed, and he had defaulted on several bank loans and had the family home foreclosed on. Police discovered that Ronald had taken out life insurance policies on his children prior to Timothy's death. In January of 1974, he had taken out a $10,000 life insurance policy on both of his children. And then one month before Timothy's death, he took out an additional $20,000 policy on both children. Just days before Timothy's death, he had taken out yet another $20,000 policy on each child. That's a total of $60,000 that he would receive. His wife, Danine, was shocked. She claimed that she did not know about the life insurance policies on her children. That is super sketchy. These stories involving life insurance are such red flags. 
I feel like anytime someone takes out life insurance policy on somebody else, there should be frequent follow-ups to make sure that person's okay. I totally agree. To make it worse, at 9 a.m. the very next day after Timothy was pronounced dead, Ronald called the insurance company to collect on his son's insurance policies. Detectives also heard from family of the O'Briens expressing concern over Ronald's behavior after the funeral. They said that he was oddly angry at them for not staying up the night of Timothy's funeral to watch the news coverage. Apparently, Ronald had written a song about Jesus and Timothy joining the Lord in heaven and was angry when his grieving family wouldn't stay up late to watch a recording of the performance being broadcasted on television. Uh, yeah, none of that is normal for a grieving parent. I mean, watching the news would be the least of my worries after losing a child. Right? Soon after, police requested a warrant and a search of the O'Brien's house offered up a pair of scissors with plastic residue attached, which was similar to what was found on the cyanide lace suites. Ronald was arrested and taken in for questioning, but he maintained his innocence and insisted that an anonymous monster killed his son. A witness who worked for a chemical company in Houston told police that a man had come in to buy some cyanide, but left after being told that the smallest amount that he could buy was five pounds. The witness said that he couldn't identify Ronald, but he had remembered that the customer was wearing a beige or blue smock, like a doctor, just like the uniform Ronald wore to work. Although police never discovered when or where Ronald bought the poison, a chemist friend of Ronald's reported that in the summer of 1973, O'Brien contacted him asking about cyanide and how much would be fatal. Friends and co-workers remarked that in the months before Timothy's death, Ronald had shown an unusual interest in cyanide and spoke about how much it would take to kill a person. This guy just keeps looking guiltier and guiltier. Um, yeah, it's not every day someone goes out shopping to pick up some cyanide. Yeah, most people wouldn't even know where to buy that kind of thing. But this man apparently finds multiple places to buy cyanide, but can't find a better way to seal the pixie sticks than staples. <laughs> I mean, you deserve whatever comes to you at this point, And let me tell you, he got just that. <laughs> he was indicted on one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. Ronald entered a not guilty plea with his defense blaming the tainted candy on some untraceable boogeyman. He claimed it was a random sick individual using the cover of Halloween to poison unsuspecting children, but friends, family, and co-workers all testified against him. His defense mainly revolved around the decade-old urban legend concerning a mad poisoner who hands out Halloween candy laced with poison or needles or razor blades. These stories have persisted, despite the fact that there were no documented instances of strangers poisoning Halloween candy prior to Ronald O'Brien. We have all heard those stories, but it isn't a strong defense. It sounds more like those urban legends are where he got his inspiration. Right? I feel like he was just giving away how he even got the idea. They had mostly circumstantial evidence, though. Hopefully he didn't get away with it. Oh, no. On June 3rd of 1975... It took just 46 minutes for a jury to return a guilty verdict for one charge of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. An hour later, he was sentenced to be executed by electric chair. In prison, Ronald was shunned and despised by his fellow death row inmates for killing a child and was absolutely friendless. The inmates reportedly petitioned to hold an organized demonstration on Ronald's execution date to express their hatred for him. Okay, we've heard before that prisoners have a kind of code, 
and you never hurt a child, but they really hated this guy. Oh, I'm sure his time in jail was hell. Did he try to appeal his case, or is this the last time we heard from him? He did, but Ronald's appeal avenues were explored and all turned down. An attorney argued that O'Brien's death sentence was complicated by his lack of criminal record. Ronald had never had anything but a parking ticket in his life. The attorney suggested that there was no evidence that Ronald couldn't have been rehabilitated. His death sentence was delayed for nearly a decade after his guilty verdict. By this point, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled the electric chair as a cruel and unusual punishment, so his life was ended with lethal injection. Outside of the Texas State Penitentiary, a crowd of around 300 people gathered to hear if the Candyman had met his end. When he was pronounced dead, the crowd started shouting trick-or-treat and started throwing candy at anti-death penalty protesters. That's a hardcore community response. Yeah, that's a bit much. (laughs) Did he have anything to say for himself? In his last statement, he said, and I quote, What is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. However, we as human beings do make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs, yet doesn't mean our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I would forgive anyone who has taken part in my death. Also, to anyone I've offended in any way during my 39 years, I pray and ask for your forgiveness, just as I forgive anyone who has offended me in any way. And I pray and ask God's forgiveness for all of us respectfully as human beings. To my loved ones, I extend my undying love. To those close to me, know in your hearts I love you one and all. God bless you all, and may God's best blessings be always yours. He sounds arrogant to the end. I mean, no one asked for your love, and from the reaction of the community after your execution, no one asked for your (laughs) forgiveness. The case and resulting trial garnered national attention, and the press started calling him the Candyman and running headlines about the man who killed Halloween. After his crimes became public, Halloween safety programs became commonplace, teaching parents methods for evaluating the safety of door-to-door treats by visual inspection. The horrific death of Timothy O'Brien would prove to be a singular crime, the only deliberate Halloween candy poisoning death ever documented. Yet the case had a lasting effect on society. While Timothy's poisoning was neither random nor anonymous, the publicity of the case confirmed parents' anxieties about stranger danger. Even now, we carefully check each piece of candy before allowing our children to dig in. On the other hand, better safe than sorry. Kids fighting cancer and other life-threatening diseases know what it's like to have their worlds altered. The common experiences we take for granted are adjusted to maintain health and healing. Ronald McDonald House of Charities is designed to support families through their child's medical journey. Whether it's a break from the clinical environment, a restorative nap or night's rest, or a sense of normalcy sitting down with a cup of tea, hospital leaders worldwide increasingly understand that accommodation and support for families contribute to high-quality and family-centered care. You can help make a difference by donating your leftover unopened candy for the kids and families to enjoy. The organization just asks you to contact your local house first to determine specifics for candy donations. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Steph and Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions, with music by Jordan Elena. 
Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. Steph, what is our Conjure tip of the week? This week, I want to share something a little different. In old Celtic traditions, this was a time to celebrate ancestors that have passed on. The apple holds great symbolic meaning this time of year, and there is a practice I personally love involving bearing an apple as an offering to a loved one that is no longer with us. Just make sure you bury it somewhere safe from being dug up by your pets. I learned that one the hard way. I never heard of a buried apple as an offering to my ancestors, but I have sacrificed tobacco to my Native American grandparents and truly believe it's a beautiful way to honor them and let your ancestors know that they are not forgotten and their guidance is appreciated. Thanks, Seth. We'll be back on Tuesday with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, conjurers, conjurers, and stay away from pixie sticks. Ah!